0: Mm-hmm. <music> Welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today to talk Americans in Action, as well as some MLS offseason activity, and at the current USMNT roster, is a man who knows that the holiday season is the best time for an international friendly in Southern California. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, Santa, Rudolph, Caden Clark, what's not to love?
1: Oh, Taylor, I actually have a T-shirt printed already with, you know, the holiday season is the best time for a Camp Candy Cane friendly against Bosnia and Herzegovina already printed. I'm actually wearing it right now. So it's kind of <laughs> eerie. We're not looking at each other, but kind of eerie that you, you just rattled that off. Very strange. Did,
0: did you make that yourself?
1: Did you find
0: someone to print that? Were they available like it mass produced for sale? Uh, Joe, I, I have questions.
1: Oh, no, I've got a T-shirt guy. He lives okay. at Graham's bait-and-tackle haircut shop. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Joe's got a guy. All right. Well, let's let's stick with that roster for a moment. Joe, we were going to have this conversation before we started recording, but I forgot to bring it up, so we're going to have it now. <laughs> How would you like to cover that? How seriously do you think we should be taking this camp? Because it's, it's a non-FIFA window, it's uh, MLS offseason, you've got a ton of MLS players in there, and a few non-MLS players, um, but it doesn't seem like it's going to tell us a huge amount about the U.S. men's national team going forward. We might learn a couple things. We might see some players back in the fold or some players given some minutes or maybe some debutants. Overall, not quite the same severity as, say, a World Cup qualifier or a Gold Cup game or a Nations League game or something like that. So, Joe, for you, how important is this game?
1: It's not that important for, yep. for me but I or for you or for really anyone that's going to be watching these games but it is important for Greg Beralter, and more important than that even, it's necessary for a lot of these players who are done with their season in Major League Soccer or who are just not getting time over in Europe, cough, cough, Brian Reynolds. It's a good opportunity for those players to get in and get looks. We've mentioned this before, right? This camp serves a couple purposes. Keep guys fresh and get looks at new guys. Those are the two main goals and really for us, we'll get some data points and maybe we'll develop some opinions on on which young players are impressing or how the veterans look like like Jordan Morris and Aaron Long who have been out for a while. Morris has played more recently than Long has. But we'll get, a, we'll get an idea and a sense of some of these things. But for us, Taylor, I feel like this is a kind of game that we'll look back on in, in weekend review or something like that. Because if we yeah. do a full-on show to recap this game... I know myself and I think I'm going to start to overanalyze things and start to draw conclusions that really just don't matter. And in, in I think I'll start to overvalue certain things. So I, I think we should tackle this one on Monday uh, with whoever else wants to chime in with some thoughts on it. But it, it will be a valuable exercise, but more so for Beralta and those players than it will be for us.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's the answer, because this is more of a personal thing, but we don't often talk about the U.S. women's national team friendlies, because sometimes they're playing teams that they fully expect to beat 6 7 nothing, or they're playing a team back-to-back, Uh, and this feels the equivalent of that type of friendly for the U.S. women, so for us to give full coverage to the U.S. men for a a meaningless friendly, or a potentially meaningless friendly, that we could easily overanalyze, I'm with you, Joe, I think that's for... For weekend reviewing purposes, uh, but we can talk about this squad for a moment because I'm looking through it. Joe, I'm going to build an argument here, all right? I'm going to gonna, gonna jump to it right away. This feels strangely like it could be a 3-5-2 or a back three with a front two, and I will explain why. First, how strongly do you agree or disagree with that idea?
1: <laughs> I don't agree, but Taylor, right. I, know, I know where you're going and I all can right. see some of the logic behind it. Keep going. All right.
0: So... First off, the sheer number of center backs included. There are six of them, which to me feels like too many for a one-off friendly game. Unless we're playing three at the back, then maybe that balances out a bit more. But a lot of it comes down to uh, the depth elsewhere. Because if we look to the forward line, the more sort of traditional number nine players, yes, maybe somebody gets played out wide, maybe we try different things. But there's Ricardo Pepe, there's Jossi Zardes, there's Cade Cowell, there's, he- there's Jesus Ferreira. Those all feel like they could be more conventional forwards. Even Jordan Morris in there I could see sort of played uh, alongside somebody as a partnership. But then Taylor Booth listed as a forward when uh, everything I've seen from him listed elsewhere has him as a right back or more of a right wing back. Uh, we know that Kevin Paredes for DC United can do a left back job, but also potentially left midfield or even left wing back. So suddenly things start to click for me that maybe there is a potential of seeing a back three two sort of attacking wingbacks who have some experience in that spot. And then I also think with the sort of lack of Tyler Adams, we've talked about this many times, it's tough to find somebody who can do exactly what he does. So you tend to have to kind of blend it and maybe go with more like, of a two-man double pivot. And so you've got Kellen Acosta in there. That could be Jackson Yule. It could be Johnny Cardoso. Uh, I will ask you about Cole Bassett in a little bit. But Joe, that that's sort of the building block, the foundation for my argument. And the thesis statement would be Caden Clark, who really seems to function to me as a number 10 or could function as a number 10. So if you went with a like 3, 4, 1, 2. I see Caden Clark being that one. This is all complete speculation on my part, Joe. I don't know if that will happen. I doubt it does, because Berhalter hasn't uh, changed things around too much. But that is my thinking, Joe. Feel
1: free to tear it apart. So I like the line of thought, Taylor. I really do. And, it, and if this was... Any camp, but, but December or January, if this was a World Cup qualifying mm-hmm. camp and this was the, the roster distribution, three goalkeepers, 11 defenders, five central midfielders, and seven forwards. That's how it's listed on U.S. soccer's release. If this was the alignment for, you know, the January, February qualifiers, I would give everything you just said a lot of credence because Browther tends to go pretty much with those releases in terms of where he puts players or where the, you know, social media coordinator, whoever's in charge of that content, those, those tend to align w- with what he actually puts out on the field. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something like that in a meaningful game. The challenge, though, with this particular camp and making that, that connection, I think, is this is kind of a, a hodgepodge group of players, right? I think it's hard to read too much into, okay, there's six center backs. That means there's going to be a back three or there's no wingers. That means it's going to be a front two or whatever. And those, both of those things are true. But the challenge is I- I'm guessing that's not Borelter's decision. Holy, at least. I'm guessing that he was somewhat handcuffed with Ah. these choices. And so maybe it's a choice between getting a look at Kobe Henry and Henry Kessler or just not bringing those players in and you're still going to have to ride with the same number of midfielders and forwards anyway. So you might as well bring those extra guys and get a couple extra bodies in camp. That's kind of my thinking. A normal window, I'd buy it. In, In a window like this where it's already a weird game and a weird mix of players, I'm not sure we can tell that from the roster.
0: Well, since Joe has broken my dreams, let me ask you this. <laughs> uh, so if we saw them go with the more traditional 4 four three three, or maybe even like a four two three one of sorts, I, I want to ask you about a few positions. Uh, as I said, there's a ton of depth at number nine, and it could be Pepe Zardes, Cal Ferreira. Out wide though, if we were to go in that four three three, who do you think we are most likely to see, or who would you like to see uh, playing on the wings?
1: So I've built out my preferred 11 and in my wingers in that preferred 11. Jordan Morris on the right and Jesus Ferreira on the left. And the fact that I'm putting Ferreira out there, Taylor, is is to your point, right? This roster is not really built for a 4-3-3 for a couple of different reasons. The lack of depth on the wing is certainly one of them. Ferreira can play out wide. He's done it for Dallas. He did it for the USU 23s and Olympic qualifying. We all know how that went for everyone down in Guadalajara. So not a great data point there. But I've got those two guys out wide. Caden Clark, Taylor Booth, Cade Cowell, those could all th- those players could all do it as well. Um Taylor Booth, I haven't seen a ton of with Bayern Munich 2 or when he was on loan in Austria last season. I watched a bit of him this morning and he's energetic. He's got some speed, a little quality on the ball, he's right footed. It wouldn't shock me if we saw him get some minutes in the second half. I'm sure we'll see lots of rotation. Cade Cowell, the only reason why I didn't put Cowell and Morris together is I think their profiles are a bit too similar for me. They're both these straight-line, direct, really athletic, fast players. And I kind of wanted to see a Ferreira type or someone who can drop into the half space or into the pocket to overload midfield. I kind of wanted to see a contrast in those players. So to answer your question, Taylor, that long-winded response there, I've got Morris on one side, Ferreira on the other. But I, I really don't know who we'll see, Taylor.
0: Well... Uh disregarding that last point Joe I want to stick with the the starting 11 that you've built out First off did you go with the kind of 433 shape
1: I did I did okay. I'm too scared Man I, maybe I need to be more adventurous <laughs> like you I should have gone for like a I don't know a 343 three diamond shape in the middle Croix style or something but no yeah. I went with the 433
0: well, let's let's keep going with it, but let's build uh, uh, front to back. So, we've got Ferreira and Morris for you. As you're starting number nine, should I just go ahead and write Ricardo Pepe, or
1: did you have yeah, anybody else? Yeah, yeah. I already wrote Ricardo Pepe, so you can do it too, Taylor. It wouldn't, okay. it really would not bum me out all that much. It would bum me out a little bit, but not all that much if we saw Zardes, because I think he will be a really important part of World Cup qualifying, and I'm pretty sure Braulter thinks that too, so... Getting a look at him would be fine, but I think you really want to use these opportunities to get Pepe more ingrained into the system.
0: And and I do think if we are going with the idea that this camp is about getting some faces in there, letting some people who might not otherwise be the veteran leaders in a camp be those veteran leaders, but also see who can do what and when – you do want to go with a, a shape that we've seen before that we will see replicated and more right. qualifying in that four three three, And then going with what you're doing, Joe, it gives us uh, reps for Ricardo Pepe. It lets us see how Jordan Morris is doing out on that right wing. And it lets us see maybe can, uh, can Jesus Ferreira excuse me, uh, potentially play out wide instead of as that sort of false nine or the number nine that's very mobile that we've seen in play. So it does give us
1: room for experimentation. What did you do with your midfield becomes the next question. So my midfield is that midfield three. I've got Acosta as a six, Cole Bassett as one of the eights, and then I dropped Caden Clark. I know, Taylor, you had him as a, a potential 10. He's also listed on the roster as a forward. I think I like him best as this connector type of eight or or as a pressing 10, but I don't think the U.S. will be really using that spot in this game, so I've got Bassett and Clark as the eights in front of Acosta. All right, and, and with
0: Bassett, uh, that is a question I had for you because I'm less familiar with him. Where is his sort of ideal position, generally speaking? And then from the context of the U.S. men's national team,
1: as we've understood it and seen it, where does he fit? I think there's a lot of overlap in his okay. best position and what we've seen him really thrive at with the Rapids compared to where he could play for the U.S. men's national team. I see him as an 8 in a 4-3-3. In a three, three. He can play a little deeper as part of a double pivot. He can also play a little higher in the half spaces, and he did that under Robin Fraser almost as a oh, oh, quote-unquote winger, but really not providing width. That was left to the right wing back. He would tuck inside and just play underneath a nine. I like him best as a kind of box arriving number eight, where he has a little responsibility and up. He can get forward, but then he provides some value with his off-ball movement and in arriving into the box uh, as attacks develop around him. So I think that role is there with the U.S., and I think that role is as a number eight. And then you had uh,
0: Clark in there as well, Caden Clark, as your other number eight?
1: Yep, and I, I like what he brings as this connective tissue. Not a super creative guy, but really spatially aware. Creative, I, let me back up. He's creative in in his ability in tight spaces, but he's not an Ozil type of through ball threader, right? He's not a Martin Odegaard or anything like that. He's, he's much more of a connector, kind of like Bassett. Bassett might even have a bit more key pass playing ability than Caden Clark, but I, I like what Clark brings in terms of his ability to see space and just run and run and run. So
0: Ozil Odegaard, so Caden Clark to Arsenal confirmed by Joe. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yep. Yeah, it's Perfect. done. It's already done. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then in the you're mail. Back,
0: you're back for Joe. Uh, I do not know the fitness or kind of health status of Aaron Long, but if we are going to go the back four and everybody is healthy, how do you feel about Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long as your two center backs?
1: I'm not mad at it, Taylor, and I really did think about it. It would mm-hmm. be it'd be great to see Aaron Long get a run out right after he's been out with injury for so long. I think that would be a really cool moment for him in a good building block. I don't have those two as my starting center backs, though. I have Zimmerman in there because I think he's going to be a key part going forward, and I'd like to see him continue to get reps. He'll be involved in World Cup qualifying. I'm almost sure of it. I've got Austin Trusty next to him, Taylor, as the left center back. So Zimmerman on the right, Austin Trusty on the left. Now, Trusty hasn't played a lot of center back in a back two for the Rapids because Robin Frazier mostly used a back three. And so Trusty was either the left sided center back in that back three or, or even playing a little bit wide on the left as a left wing back. I would like to see him though in this role. He's, he's still a little raw and he might never break out of that, but he's, he's got these long arms and legs. He covers ground. He's pretty decent on the ball I'd like to see what he looks like in the system because I don't think we've ever seen him with the U.S. before I think he's been in camp maybe even that first January camp under Berhalter but I'm, I'm just curious to get a look at what he might be next to Walker Zimmerman
0: and Zim I think is right-footed I could be wrong but yes so yep. it, that does give us the left foot right foot left center back right center back
1: always always ideal what about uh out wide Joe who are your fullbacks I've got Kevin Paredes on the left, and, and Jordan and I kind of—we kind of, uh, we were very high on Kevin Paredes last week when the three of us recorded. We'll just put it that way. Really fun player. I've got him on the left, and then Brian Reynolds on the right. I don't know who we'll see, because there, there's options in both of those spots in, in this camp. George Bello could start on the left. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Justin Che could start on the right. Jonathan Gomez could start on the left. There's options here. But I I'd like to see Brooks Lennon. There's another one. Sorry, I missed that one in the in, in my scanning over the roster. But I would like to see Reynolds, you know, flying all the way across the Atlantic. Get him some time, right? Get him some minutes. Maybe that draws a little bit of buzz to get a loan move or something like that. I've already read a few reports about that potentially being in the works. I don't know where that that the status of that loan might be. But getting a look at Brian Reynolds, I think, would would be a good thing. And I like what he brings as a player, and I'm bummed we haven't gotten to see him much at all for Roma.
0: Uh no arguments here. And I think that right back spot is positive in a weird way because I'm with you that I would like to see Brian Reynolds start and if he does then I like the idea of giving him just a little bit of confidence you put him in the national team he goes back to Roma having played for the U.S. national team and feeling maybe a little bit better but yes also maybe it puts him in the shop window but simultaneously if it is Brooks Lennon I I firmly believe that Brian Reynolds is brought in to get that confidence, to kind of be reminded that he's in the conversation, that it's not just about his current club form, that he has got a long career ahead of him. But if Brooks Lennon starts, to me that sort of shows Lennon Came into camp and proved that he should start this game and sort of earned that. Not to say that Reynolds will be given the starting position, but I think either way, it shows that Brooks Lennon has earned that spot and will be in that in contention or in that conversation or that Brian Reynolds gets an opportunity to play some actual soccer. I think either way, uh, I'm fine with it. Uh, And either way, no matter who starts in goal, I'm fine with it as long as it's Matt Turner.
1: Yep. Yeah, no, same. Gaga, Slonina and John Polescam will have to wait their turn because it's Matt Turner time, baby.
0: And we have talked, uh, you, uh, yourself, myself, and Jordan talked about this roster, we've talked about it here, but Joe, one more time, away from the starting 11 from some of the names you've already talked about, is there anybody you would really like to see get maybe a 30-minute cameo or get 15 minutes here yeah. or there, or I guess not here or there, but 15 minutes or 30 minutes in that second half?
1: I'd love to get a look at Taylor Booth. I really would because we just haven't seen a ton of him. We mentioned that already. And the other guy I'd love to see is Jonathan Gomez. Gomez and Paredes are maybe the two most exciting young players on this squad. They both play on the left side. Paredes can play higher, Gomez can too as, as more of a wing back. But I don't I mean both of them can't start in any logical way that I can piece together. Maybe you shift Paredes up to the left wing, but I think one of them will start. I hope it's Paredes. And then maybe we get a, either a 45 or a 30 minute cameo from Jogo on that side.
0: And uh, final, final note on this one, is there anything that you feel like we can take away? Let's say like Jordan Morris gets a goal and looks lively on that right wing. Does that move him further into the conversation for a potential right wing spot? Uh, if Austin Trusty looks really, really solid as that left-footed center back, do we have more to talk about when it comes to the center back position? Like, Is there any one or two, any one or two spots or players that you think could really elevate with a good performance against Bosnia?
1: I don't know. Taylor is is yep. the honest answer. I don't know how Berhalter no, will look at answer. these, and and I I'm still just so reticent to over overanalyze this game. I think who we see will tell us some things that won't tell us other things, right? If we see Aaron Long get minutes, that does tell us that okay, he's he's ready to go, or at least he's closer to being ready to go than he's ever been in the last however many months now. Same with Jordan Morris. So there's things we can learn. But I don't, I would be really hesitant to take too much out of this game for almost anyone. I
0: love that answer, Joe. I really do. I love the idea of not just pontificating and trying to come up with something on the fly, but instead saying, I don't know, let's watch the game and see what happens. <laughs> and then we can incorporate that into the thinking as we move forward. A rational answer, Joe. Let's see if you remain rational as we talk about uh, MLS offseason and Americans in action in just a little bit. First, a word from today's sponsors. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe Larry, we are back. We're going to talk MLS. We've talked plenty of MLS Cup. We don't need to go back down that one, but we can talk about the offseason, which is already in full swing Let's start on the coaching front, where there's been a bit of movement. Uh, Bob Bradley to Toronto FC, Ezra Hendrickson to Chicago. We've talked about both of those a little bit. We can talk about them again here, but rounding it out, Nico Estevez to Dallas. Pat Noonan reportedly headed to Cincinnati. Not Jim Curtin, although they seem to be uh, continuing to try to make that happen. And Venny Sartini and Pablo Mastroeni staying with Vancouver and RSL, respectively. Jill, let's go back to the top of that list. Bob Bradley to Toronto or Ezra Hendrickson to Chicago? Is there one, do you prefer one of those moves to the other right now?
1: Oh, it's gotta be Bob. It's gotta be Bob Bradley with what he's done in Major League Soccer and how he helped build that LAFC team and how he's helped build teams in Major League Soccer in the past. It's a great hire. I think it's a great hire for Toronto FC. And there's already things happening there. There's been reports about Josie Altidore not returning to the team as a designated player. It doesn't seem like he's likely to be back at all from from the reports that I've read out of Toronto so there's things changing the guard is changing a little bit there's been reports about uh Insigne from Napoli in in the Italian national team potentially being added to this Toronto FC team and that would be would be a great signing he would immediately i think become the best player in Major League Soccer by at least a small distance and he could be that team's Carlos Vela I don't know how they'll look under Bob Bradley I don't know how they'll play But that move generally fits a similar profile, really high-level attacking player. Got some miles left in their legs as well. I think Insigne is 30 years old right now. He could cause big, big, big problems for opposing fullbacks up in Toronto. Big,
0: big problems. Simultaneously, a very uh, diminutive man is what I will say. And I really enjoy I know this is not what they actually did. But I do enjoy the idea of the Toronto Brain Trust thinking, You know, we got another small Italian that one time in Sebastian Giovinco, and little Sebastian (laughs) did some things for us. Let's just get another and see what happens. And so off for Insigne, they will go. I think that would be... A very, very, very smart move if they were to make it happen. Uh, And I look forward to Bob Bradley and Michael Bradley having heated arguments on the sideline, despite neither one showing any sort of emotion, just staring at each other and having very animated conversations. And I do feel that Michael maybe starts the coaching career at some point under Bob Bradley if they both remain in Toronto. That feels like a transition we'll see from Michael Bradley in the medium near future And I think would be good, but I look forward to seeing it happen. I look forward to the two of them coaching together and then maybe coaching opposite each other. Joe, some of the other moves I am much less familiar with. Let's start with Nico Estevez, uh, long-term, long-time assistant to Greg Berhalter, going back to his Columbus days. Now uh,
1: going to Dallas. Do you like that one? I do like that one, and in, in the early things that I've heard. And again, it is very early; just a couple of weeks into this thing happening, the early signs are are good. Generally, leaves a positive impression on folks, which doesn't surprise me, given all that we heard about him working with Yunus Musa and getting him to really commit to the U.S. Men's National Team. They have that Valencia tie-in before. Before he was, uh, before Estevez, excuse me, was coaching under Greg Peralta with the crew and with the national team, he was in the Valencia system with their B team and, and coached one or two games for the senior team as an interim coach in La Liga. So he had that tie in with Musa and, and made a good impression there apparently with, with Musa and has done the same in Dallas so far. It's hard because he's only had a very short time as a head coach. He coached Huracan Valencia in, I don't know, about a decade ago now. He's only had a short time and that was not a top flight team. So we don't really know how he wants to play or how capable he is of implementing his tactical ideas into a team on his own with with Zaf under him supporting him instead of the other way around. But I think stylistically, it's fair to infer that he'll keep the Greg Baralther general principles alive, right? He'll keep, we want to use the ball, he'll keep moving together as a defensive unit, likely with a little bit of pressure like we saw from the national team of the last two years now. I think we'll see some of those things in Dallas too, which works uh, and, and has some continuity with how Lucha Gonzalez is doing things. So I like this hire. I don't know if it will fix Dallas. I, I kind of doubt that it will, but it, it could be a step in the right direction.
0: I don't know what you mean when you say fix Dallas. It's such an easy task. All he has to do is play his young players, uh, sell on the best ones, not be able to reinvest that money or have a large budget, and then still
1: make the playoffs. What's hard about that, Joe? Taylor, that was phenomenal. Like, I know it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but that's a great summary of of how hard this Dallas job is, right? They want to do everything. and, And they get criticized when they don't do everything. And a lot of the criticism is just, right? And I've thrown criticism out there as well. You know, they don't have the squad in so many senses to really compete in Major League Soccer. They haven't nailed a lot of those uh, those foreign signings, which can be so key to supplement the really talented domestic products that they're churning out. So it's not an easy job. Dallas finished 11th in the West last season on 33 points, a really poor season from them. And maybe letting Luigi Gonzalez go was a bit harsh, You know, not maybe results-wise, and he had made the playoffs. But he hadn't done a ton there in terms of on-field results, and maybe Estevez will have better luck, and maybe he won't.
0: Joe, let me ask you this because FC Dallas seems like it would be this ideal destination for a coach who wants to sort of develop young players and bring them through and emphasize that sort of development and sell players on and like kind of gain that reputation. But certainly that doesn't allow you to consistently challenge or make the playoffs or challenge for MLS Cup or anything like that. For you, a person who watches a lot of the league and has a lot of familiarity with a lot of these teams, if you, Joe, were given the opportunity to coach like one team, which one do you think has the best sort of model and foundation to allow for consistent long-term success, playing young players, but also having the kind of names that you need to
1: get a result in the playoffs? It might be the Philadelphia Union right now, I like Taylor. It it, it I like really it. might be. They don't spend a ton uh in terms of salaries or in terms of transfer fees but they have the academy part down and, and they have a lot of the budget buys from, from Europe or from South America down to the one thing that I think we're, that, that the union is missing. We're as if I'm already a part of this club. The one thing that I think the union are missing. And we talked about this throughout the playoffs is real attacking talent in the front line. They have talent behind that line, but Casper Shabilko and Sergio Santos maybe haven't done enough there to, to really warrant being involved a lot going forward. So They they have almost everything going for them in the front office. And and coaching-wise, I think that might be the model when you're looking at mixing youth development with actual on-field results and and sustainability, too. I noticed that you
0: didn't say FC Cincinnati, uh, which is not a surprise (laughs) to me. What was a surprise were the reports that they were aggressively pursuing Jim Curtin. And I'm genuinely not trying to pour salt into the FC Cincinnati wound, but why – it just doesn't make sense to me why they think that Jim Garton would leave the union for Cincinnati. And I know there's the Albright connection. I know that there are some relationships there. But for the most part, it does seem to me like the union money, is a money, pretty money. good spot to be in, at least right now.
1: Money, 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 there we money, go. money. That's I think that's all Cincinnati was hoping for in terms of, of making this deal happen with Jim Curtin. I mean, that, that's, that's it, right? It's, it's the money and it's the, the fan fair. support. There are other things, right? It's the money, it's the fan support, it's the new stadium. Taylor, you've been there, I have, and I'm sure it's, it's beautiful and modern and all of those things. That's what they're hoping for. And there's so much potential, right? That's, that's also what I'm getting at here. There's so much potential with Cincinnati right now. Coupled with the reports by uh, Taylor Twelman and Sam Sage so this thing is is definitely happening at this point, that they're going to assign Pat Newton as their new head coach, Jim Curtin's assistant in Philadelphia, former assistant under Bruce Arena with the Galaxy and the U.S. Men's national team. He's coached with some of the best coaches in American soccer right there in those two guys. Same situation as Estevez in that we don't really know how he's going to want to play. But you kind of have to think between Cincinnati snagging Chris Albright, who had worked under Ernst Tanner in the union's front office as their GM and now coupling him with Pat Noonan, who worked under Jim Curtin, we could be working towards a Philadelphia light situation with at least the on-field product. So I think I like this, this hire. I, I want to reserve judgment on pretty much all of these until later in the season. But smart moves, I think, happening out of Cincinnati right now, which feels a bit weird to say, but, uh, but good, good <sighs> on you.
0: Uh, we've talked some managerial moves also some players on the move Joe what are some of like the big like three or four of the big moves that you've been most interested in so far in the offseason
1: yeah Eduardo Atuesta is number one by far he has been a fixture of this LAFC team, not not immediately from a jump in Major League Soccer in terms of the team's existence, but over the last few seasons, he's been downright phenomenal. Just so, so good. I'm a little surprised. So he's, he's going to Palmeiras in Brazil. Tom Bogert and, and some other folks were on that. Bogert reported a $4 million fee up front, and that could rise to $7 million for LAFC based on performance and incentives. It's it, the reason why I say it's surprising is because I feel like Atuesta is a guy who who could go and impact a Champions League team yesterday, right? He's got that much skill on the ball. He could be at Ajax, and no one would blink. He's he's that good. And so he'll excel in, in Brazil, and he'll excel in, in that league in the, in the top flight there in Brazil. But I thought maybe the next step would be across the Atlantic, not, not down into South America. But either way, hopefully an exciting move for him, and, and it's going to be weird to see LAFC without Etta Westa in there. So that's one. Sorry, I forgot I was supposed to do three or four here. On to the next. That took forever. Well, let me ask you, actually, we can
0: pause there for a sec. How, like, would you say LAFC next season, is it a rebuild? Is it just sort of a, like, restructuring? Would, do you expect them to be a dominant team next year? Because it, it does feel like they're losing parts and pieces in a couple different areas.
1: There's big questions around this LAFC team right now. The first and biggest question is who's going to be coaching this team? It could be Steve Terundolo coming up from the Las Vegas Lights who are affiliated with LAFC, at least for now. So he could be the hire there. They could be looking somewhere else. We don't really know. There hasn't been a lot of reports out about that. So that's a big question. And then there is the question of the roster. Diego Rossi left midseason to go to Fenerbahce in Turkey. So he's gone. Carlos Vela, what happens with him? I mean, Atuesta's gone now. Mark anthony Kay was traded to the Rapids midseason. It's a different team than the first and maybe even second iterations of LAFC. I don't think it will be a full rebuild because they've gradually overhauled this roster over the period of a year or two now. But certainly a retooling and certainly an opportunity for them to find themselves and figure out what they're going to be on the field. Atuesta is just another loss in that category that that signals a changing of the guard in L.A. All right.
0: So that's one uh, player on the move. Uh, who else you want to talk about, Joe?
1: Franco Escobar is a big one. Uh, 26-year-old defender. He can play right center back. He can play center back in a back two or a back three. Or right back or right wing back. He can kind of do it all. He was with Atlanta United, played under Tata a bit, and and then was loaned back to his club in Argentina. Newell's old boys and now was traded from Atlanta to LAFC during the half-day trade window that we had on Sunday? I think it was the day after MLS Cup. It gets a little hard to keep track. Ah, yes. The age-old half-day transfer window. To recap, during the half-day transfer window, Franco Escobar, who had not played with Atlanta United at all last season, was traded from Atlanta United to LAFC. Not complicated at all. It's actually not all that complicated. But he's now with LAFC. He's a good player, and I think he's going to do some good work in LA. Uh, So that's uh, that's a signing that I'm interested in. And then the other one, the other major one, this one happened or at least news of it broke before these other ones that I've already mentioned. Lewis Morgan, uh, Scott going to yeah, going to the New York Red Bulls from Inter-Miami. Inter-Miami got a lot for him. They're at an allocation money deficit thanks to their whole five DPs thing. Uh, you know, we've talked about that plenty in the past, but they're in the bit of a hole financially in Major League Soccer. So they got rid of one of their best, if not their best and most consistent player they traded him to the Red Bulls for a, a lot of money, probably an overpay by the New York Red Bulls. But I think Lewis Morgan has the skills to put in work under Gerhard Struber. So that trade helps Miami out, uh, helps the Red Bulls out, at least on the field, if not in the pocketbook. So those are three, Atuesta, Escobar, and, uh, and uh, Morgan, that I'm really interested in seeing how they pan out next season.
0: What about uh, Jalen Lindsay to Charlotte? How are you feeling about that one?
1: I feel good. Uh, Jalen Lindsay traded to Charlotte from Sporting Kansas City during that half-day trade window as well. He's a guy that I think a lot of U.S. fanatics have seen some with the U-20s in the past. He got some minutes with SKC over the last few years, too. He's a good player, and Charlotte are in the midst of building their core right now under that front office and under uh, Miguel and and Hel Ramirez, the coach that they brought in from South America. They're building this roster. They've got the expansion draft tonight as we're recording on Tuesday. They've already made a few moves, a few foreign signings, and now they're going to be moving towards more signings within Major League Soccer. The expansion draft will be interesting, and I think Lindsey could play a decent part and have a decently big role in this team next season.
0: Let's pause and talk about that expansion draft for a second, Joe. Uh, I am not particularly familiar with how Charlotte will try to play or what their style is going to be. I'm not sure if anyone is, uh, short of people who work for Charlotte FC. Joe, from the list of players that we do have that we do know is available for the expansion draft, who would you advise Charlotte to sign if they're just looking for just sort of good players that you think can be molded into whatever style they're going to play? So not necessarily who's going to be the kind of attacking left back who can't defend, but players that you think could just do the job that you need to be done if you're an MLS team trying to
1: establish yourself and maybe make the playoffs. You never know. Sure. And when I think about guys that can be valuable to a lot of different teams, I think about players who have had experiences in a number mm-hmm. of different roles, right? Who yeah. have played in a bunch of different spaces. And one name really comes to mind pretty quickly in that regard. Tristan Blackman was left unprotected by LAFC. He's 25. He can play center back. He can play right back in a back three or a back four. He can play wing back in a five. I prefer him as either a right back or a right center back in a three. But he can do a whole bunch of different stuff. He's only making... I don't know, just, just over $200,000 a year, I believe. So his budget charge wouldn't be insane for Charlotte. He's he's kind of a no-brainer for me. And, and I've read some things about maybe there being some shenanigans between LAFC, not in a bad way, but some, some MLS roster rules, things going on between LAFC and Charlotte that could potentially prevent him from being taken. Maybe there's going to be a trade worked out that he's going to Charlotte anyway. I don't know, but Blackman's a name that I would circle in red. Uh, another one, uh, Ishmael Tajiri Shradi. Ugh, that was a tough one for me. The law firm himself uh, just won MLS Cup with New York City FC. He's making a, a bit more, uh, a few hundred thousand dollars more than Tristan Blackman, but can play on either wing. Hasn't been getting a ton of minutes with NYCFC, but I like him as a player. He's a good spark plug off the bench, if nothing else. So he's somebody I'd look at. Then Emerson Heineman. This is a bit more of a high spender. He's making almost a million dollars a year. But talented on the ball, a good connector. I see him kind of in that Cole Bassett mode that we talked about earlier, just maybe a a bit deeper downfield. Can play as an eight in a midfield three. Can play as part of a double pivot. Can play a little bit deeper. He can do a bunch of different stuff. And if Charlotte decide that that he does maybe fit a little bit of how Ramirez wants to play, that move would not surprise me if, if he was taken tonight.
0: How surprised would you be if Diego Rossi were selected? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've seen a few things about this. I think Tom Bogert wrote a, a little bit about that in his uh, in his piece on the expansion draft that's up on MLSoccer.com. He wouldn't be actually playing for Charlotte FC, yep. <laughs> but uh, there's a chance that he would come back to Major League Soccer and, and that then Charlotte would have his rights and that he would play for them. It would be kind of a baller move. I'm just going to say it. It would be a baller move if Charlotte did that and actually worked out for them. We've seen some expansion draft shenanigans in the past. Cough Cough, Austin FC picking Joe Corona and then not agreeing to a contract with him. And he goes to play for their in-state rivals, Houston Dynamo. We've seen some fun things happen before. This could be another one on that list.
0: I think Joe Corona is uh, still unprotected. He is. He's in there
1: for Houston. So, Joe, they can can just keep that tradition going if they wanted to. Oh, suck on that, Austin. We can have Joe Corona and you can't.
0: All right, well, we will see what happens with the expansion draft. We will see what happens with Americans Abroad in the final segment. Still upcoming. First, one more word from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from The Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be... Welcome back. We normally, when it comes to Americans in action, do a quick hits section, then we get into some deeper dives because we're talking roster and some MLS offseason activity. It's going to be mostly quick hits for this one with a few little moments uh, added in. Joe, where would you like to start with the Americans who did things this past weekend?
1: Let's start with Chris Richards, Taylor, if we can. So there's, to to preface this discussion, there's some good things happening with Americans abroad and there's some interesting sort of (laughs) drama-y moments happening. So I wanted to start with a good on-field thing and then we can hit the the transfer question marks happening later. Uh, But but to start off, Chris Richards started for Hoffenheim and scored the game winner in a 2-1 win over Freiburg over the weekend. 94th minute, Taylor. It's 1-1. Hoffenheim are looking for this game winner. Corner kick on the left side. Chris Richards starts his run, overpowers his marker. Freiburger defending man-to-man, at least on Richards. And he heads it in towards near the near post areas where the header happens. And he heads it into the back of the net. That win gets Hoffenheim to fourth in the Bundesliga. So they're in the Champions League spots. Chris Richards has started a couple of games recently after being on the bench for a while. And he just scored a game winner and was man of the match in this Bundesliga game. It doesn't get a lot better for Chris Richards, Taylor. Here's the thing.
0: I'm going to be a little bit of a killjoy for a moment. Ooh, my I role. That's my that, job. That's that my this job. this goal happened. I was excited for the situation in which it happened. Yeah, 94th minute with four minutes of added time. That's all very good. But watching his individual actions, the passing, Joe, can we talk about his passing for a moment? How much of this game did you see from his passing ability?
1: I saw a little bit, but not a ton. Certainly not as much as it seems like you did.
0: All right. So watching his distribution out of the back, I got some concerns. And maybe it was just a weird game. Uh, Last week, he was around 80% passing accuracy. This week, he was around 81.4% passing accuracy. Not around. That was his exact percentage. (laughs) But the numbers are where I start to get a little bit nervous, specifically once you get into longer range passing because he stays around at 90% accuracy for short passes around like mid eighties, mid low eighties for medium range. But once you drop into the long range passes, he is 70% or below consistently this season. And in this game in particular, I saw him as the sort of left-sided center back, uh, trying to play the ball down that left channel or through the left channel or into the feet of his teammates. And uh, oftentimes it's it's a weird thing that like he, you can tell who he's playing it to, and it goes maybe two yards either side of them, but there's another mm. teammate behind them that ends up receiving the pass. And so that counts as, as completed. That's an accurate pass technically, but it's not to the person he was aiming for. And in other moments when he's under pressure, when he's got someone sort of hassling him, Three different times he passed the ball straight to a Freiburg player who then counterattacked. One time I think he had to concede a free kick because of the kind of threat of that counter. And it was the shakiest I think I've seen him look in distribution. Not quite as shaky as the other player I'm going to talk about who plays center back in Europe. But it it was just (laughs) a sort of... A thing that stood out to me, I think because I fully expected with this man of the match performance to be be just a rock solid performance from him from start to finish. And knowing that he gets the goal, but then seeing just some of that errant passing, it did make me want to remember that for the future. So if he has that moment for the U.S. men's national team, I won't be so surprised because this does seem to be a slight drawback in his game at present.
1: Taylor I love that. I mean, I don't love it. I don't yeah. love that it wasn't to be loved and it wasn't good enough, but I I love that you bring that up because that is something that I think generally in terms of his distribution Chris Richards is is pretty good at, right? You bring up those long past statistics, those counting stats. There's some challenge there, and I appreciate that you went in and watched the clips, too, because just looking at the raw numbers, I mean, there's so much situational context that isn't in there. True, true, right? true, true, I mean, you know, what kind of pressure is he under? How, what is he being asked to do, right? There, there's challenges with just relying on that particular set of numbers. But going through and watching the tape, that actually lines up fairly well with some things I've seen of Richards this season. I think he's more talented and has a higher ceiling on the ball than... Everyone in the U.S. pool, the, the U.S. center back pool, except John Brooks, and we'll talk more about him later. You know, I, I think he's got so much quality and so much potential on the ball, but there is room for him to up his consistency. There is room for him to be a bit more effective a bit more often on the ball. We're not seeing it yet, and that's not all that surprising. It's it's what, his second season, midway through his second season playing for Hoffenheim, playing in a, in a top-flight league after playing with Byron in their reserve system and with Dallas. So he hasn't been out there for a ton of time still, so that's one of the things that I think he can continue to work on, Taylor.
0: All right. All right. I feel better about Chris Richards. I feel the exact same as I have felt for a long time about Cameron Carter Vickers, a player we have not talked about very much on the show of late, but has been performing well in Scotland. We got a few people messaging us to say he was in a team of the week or he's been doing well. So I wanted to see how he's been doing. Uh, I watched uh, his game against Motherwell, a a 1-0 win. He plays the full game. They are currently second in the Scottish Premiership. And it was a Cameron Carter Vickers performance from start oh, to finish. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> it was him fighting for everything, winning a lot of what he fought for, but then also still uh, being shaky at times, especially when he was trying to clear the ball off of a volley, when there was kind of a bouncing loose ball. Like, let's say the the midfielder in front of him challenged for a header, and it sort of is flicked on, it's bouncing to him. I think two, maybe three times in this game, he completely slices that clearance and it goes straight up in the air. One moment, he slices it straight up in the air, goes to do it again, and misses that one completely, and it almost leads to a goal-scoring opportunity for Motherwell. So there was still some of... That shakiness, but the larger thing, not a ton of uh, passing forward, a lot of lateral passes or short passes or just getting rid. And I don't think that's his fault. I don't think it's not as though Celtic are trying to play tiki-taka like Barcelona and he's just hoofing the ball. I think he's doing what he's being asked to do, but not a ton of vertical passing, not a lot of carrying the ball forward and trying to open up the opposition I, I think that he is a performer who, if Greg Berhalter is watching, I asked Graham Ruffin if this was fair because he watches a lot of Celtic. And it's, it's, it's a blunt instrument center back. He's going to win everything in the air. He's going to body you in 1v1 scenarios. He's going to like go in for those tackles and more often than not win the ball. But he's not going to do a ton in possession. And maybe he's not going to help you kind of facilitate attacks. So I think Cameron Carter-Vickers a good center back, but I think not good in the way that Burhalter needs his center backs to be.
1: If Graham gets his wish and Jose Mourinho becomes the future manager, eventually becomes the manager of the U.S. Men's national team, I want CCV back there. I want him just doing everything he can defensively. Maybe he'll clean up that that clearing balls on the volley thing by then, by 2030 or whenever this is going to be. I just, I I love CCV because I don't think he's really going to change much as a player. He hasn't really changed much as a player. We kind of know what he is and he's fun to watch in that pure chaos kind of way. I think he'll just not maybe fit with the U.S. anytime soon. It'll take until Jose's manager for that to make sense. All right. Well, until Jose Mourinho is manager,
0: Joe, uh, you mentioned John Brooks earlier. Did you want to mention him here as well?
1: Oh, let's do it, Taylor. Let's just okay. rip the Band-Aid off. Things are chaotic with John mm-hmm. Brooks, and we mentioned him on, I don't know, a few weeks ago now after Wolfsburg's loss to Dortmund, and I thought in that game he had a Pretty good performance with the exception of, of mistiming a jump that led to an Erling Holland goal, which sounds like I'm I'm underplaying that, but I really do think those moments happen a lot, and, and Brooks probably gets that right more often than not. So I'm not too concerned about his aerial ability, but after that, and, and recently, he hasn't been playing for Wolfsburg. As we're recording on Tuesday, the, the Wolfsburg have a game against Koln in like an hour, and so I don't know if he's in that lineup or not but he hasn't played in either of Wolfsburg's last two games prior to recording. He was left on the bench in both of those DNP. There was a piece in Bild, a German newspaper, on John Brooks, and Derek Ray kindly translated some of it and posted on Twitter And this is a direct quote. Build's information is USA coach Greg Baralther was not happy with Brooks in his most recent appearances and that there was an attitude problem. And Derek Ray went on to translate the fact that Brooks has apparently become the problem child. And it's hard. There wasn't a lot of context in these tweets, and I don't have a full grasp of the story. But it is pretty clear to see that he's at least temporarily fallen out of favor with Wolfsburg. There have been some hiccups with the national team recently. His contract is up next year with Wolfsburg, which could be playing into this thing as well. Could be a bit of a power struggle. I don't know what's going to happen with John Brooks. I don't know how much he'll play for the rest of the season. I'm still inclined to say that things are going to be okay with Brooks, both with his club and with the national team. I feel much more confident that things are going to be okay with the national team because I just think he's too good to leave off of those rosters consistently. But things are not exactly uh, going smoothly with John Brooks right now, Taylor.
0: Yeah, I agree with the most of what you said. The one thing I would say about where he could be left off from the U.S. roster would be if it is a personality thing. If he true, is being true. sort of a divisive figure, if he is being frustrated and, and sort of letting that frustration bleed into the locker room, then that is where I could see him being less valued if you're disrupting sort of overall squad harmony that said it is not as though he has left the Wolfsburg team and they have suddenly performed very very well because in the games since that Dortmund loss as you mentioned uh, I think they have uh, conceded counting it up eight goals they've scored one they are winless in their last seven including a friendly in there as well but in their competitive fixtures winless in their last six I think they've lost all six in fact so not good times for Wolfsburg, but at the very least, it's not as though Brooks like, left the starting 11 and then suddenly they had back-to-back 4-0 wins and clean sheets and look like, comprehensively good again. So I guess that's good. I'm going to go like thumbs medium for him as opposed to thumbs up or thumbs down.
1: Yeah, thumbs maybe medium, maybe, 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 a maybe a little bit yeah, down. Yeah, little yeah. Bit down. Yeah. I'm literally holding my thumb up right now, and it's yeah. like just under 90 yeah. degrees, pointed a little <laughs> bit towards the floor. I think that's a fair place for us to have our respective thumbs regarding John Brooks right now.
0: Very nice. All right, Joe, who else should we talk about with Americans who did things this past weekend?
1: Okay, I want to stick with one other negative situation. We've talked about this a bit before, so not exactly an American that did something this past weekend. Well, he sat on the bench, I guess, and and got roasted by his coaching staff, Sergio Dest, right? There we go. Also seems to be out of favor with his club, John Brooks Wolfsburg, a bit out of favor. Sergio Dest with Barcelona appears to be out of favor. I want to run through a timeline, a quick timeline here, Taylor, if you'll permit me. 11-20, 11-20, November 20th, is Xavi's first game in charge of Barcelona. Sergino Eugenio Dess is injured, right? We remember he missed the November window with the U.S. national team because of a back injury. So he was injured for that debut under Xavi. Then he comes off the bench in the next game, Xavi's second game. Plays 10 minutes or so against Benfica in the Champions League midweek. He's then left on the bench on 11-27, November 27th, in the league. Okay, maybe he's still rehabbing from that injury. He starts against Real Betis on December 4th. Then he starts, but is subbed off at halftime against Bayern four days later in the Champions League. Then he's left on the bench on December 12th. That was this past weekend. And there are reports that he's not being fully appreciated by the coaching staff, meaning that they don't really value a lot of what he brings. He could be uh, just a cash uh, a cash cow for them, essentially, in the January transfer window, along with Frankie de Jong and, and, and Ter Stegen as a way for them to offload some salaries and a way for them to potentially make a, a move in a change in the squad, reports that the coaching staff is going to undergo, quote, intense tactical sessions with Dest, which just sounds completely made up to me. I don't even know what that... Film sessions? Is that what that means? I guess that's it's just, maybe we go. It's
0: just showing him footage of
1: Danny Alves from 2009. Do I mean, this. Like, do
0: that. Do less of <laughs> yeah. what
1: you do. I just... I don't know exactly what all is going on with this this situation in Barcelona right now, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure that almost none of it is good, Taylor.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, there, like, If you go with the multiverse theory, there is a reality in which Serginho Dest is very happily starting for Bayern Munich at right back. And yep. that's where I would extend the timeline to. Remember when he was heavily linked to Bayern Munich, and that's definitely where he was going to go. Uh, instead of Barcelona, he was going to go from Ajax to Bayern Munich, and it was going to make a lot of sense. Now he is uh, supposedly linking himself with a move to Bayern. That was the reporting I saw, was that he has made contact with Bayern Munich. That seems... Exaggerated at best, but yeah, I, I do kind of agree with you, Joe, that things do not seem good. It seems like he's fallen behind Mingueza and Arajo, even maybe Sergi Roberto at right back for uh, Barcelona. The reporting indicating that uh, if there's an offer of 30 million euros, then he will be allowed to move. He joined in 2020 for around 23.8 million pounds. I forget what the conversion would be. So basically, Barcelona want a moderate return on investment to be able to move him along if you believe that reporting. And I sort of do. I don't know where he will end up. I don't know who is in the market for another Barcelona cast off, but I would say that he is in a slightly different category to say Samuel Mtiti, who has not been playing, isn't particularly popular, is on a very high wage and has been there for a while. To me, Dest having joined in 2020, I think is a player who you've got this managerial change. And maybe he just doesn't fit with Xavi. Maybe he's too representative of uh, the time under Koeman. Maybe he really liked playing for Ronald Koeman. Who knows? Maybe those intense tactical sessions will work wonders and he will be just fine. But it does feel like he is one who is going to end up surplus to requirement at, at Barcelona. And maybe also that's because he is a, one of the few players they have who can... Uh, maybe doesn't require to be in the starting 11 is a better way to put it but is still a play that they could get some money for if they did decide to sell him so we'll see what happens in January but right now not feeling like Dest's long-term career is in uh,
1: Catalonia yeah it it certainly doesn't look that way and and this is another situation like the Brooks one it's different right but I still feel pretty confident that things will be okay, at least from a national team perspective. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's any way, unless some really crazy stuff comes out about Dest, that he's not involved with the U.S. every single time he's healthy. What that role looks like, I don't know. But this is something that eventually the storm will pass and it'll start to get minutes, whether that's at Barca or somewhere else. And the club situation will be all sorted. And I think in the meantime, still have that consistent opportunity to be with the national team. So I'm I'm not incredibly worried about either one, Brooks or Dest, But it is still kind of strange to have these 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 club situations, excuse me, popping up together at the same time. And ultimately, we'll see what that looks like for both of them.
0: Well, speaking of players who get a consistent opportunity to be with the national team, let's talk about the opposite of that, which means let's talk about Luca De La Torre, uh, (laughs) who is who is a very divisive figure, at least on U.S. soccer Twitter, uh, a, a player who half of maybe soccer Twitter says, huh, who? And the other half says he should be starting for the U.S. men's national team. It's a disgrace. I would say, Joe, you are somewhere in the middle of those, maybe airing towards, like, yeah, maybe he should get some looks, and I think I am increasingly of that same school of thought.
1: Yeah, if the who dis is on the left end of the spectrum yep. and the this is the next messy is on the right, yep. I would say I am at, like... 60% to the right. I think he could be a really valuable contributor to the US not a starter if if Musa and McKinley Adams are all healthy, but maybe the next 8 off the bench.
0: Yeah, and and I think I have largely been of the opinion that like he's fine, but he's playing for a struggling Dutch team who aren't often like playing under the most intense pressure. And I mean that not in terms of their fans don't care, but I mean in terms of I have seen him yeah. Yeah, playing against a high-pressing system and how he does with that. Uh, this past weekend, they lose to Vitesse, who I, I also don't know enough about to say if they are a particularly intense, high-pressing team. But I saw him get pressed a lot, and he routinely, when he was receiving the ball, had a defender, if not on him immediately, then sprinting to close him down and doing so very quickly and effectively. And yet I still saw Luca De La Torre trying to play forward. And so his first three passes, I saw him, the first one he took back, Uh, towards the center backs. The second one, I think he took laterally. The third one, he went backwards. And so the cynic in me, the snark in me was thinking like, oh, look at that great vertical passing. Look how he turns under pressure and plays forward. And then he proceeded to do that pretty consistently. I tweeted two clips. The main one being in the 33rd minute. He receives a sort of shin high lobbed pass in the middle of the pitch. His teammate is under pressure. They're sort of just dumping the ball off, trying to get rid. And he, I wouldn't, like, begrudge him at all for just booting this ball clear, and then you don't risk coughing it up in the middle, you don't have any sort of turnover or threat of a counterattack. And instead... He brings it down while coming under pressure, plays around the the player who's who's trying to win the ball off of him, then continues his run and wins a... It's not even a 50-50 return pass. It's definitely like a 65-35 pass that he does not have any business. He's on the 35% of that one. But he ends up winning it. He carries it forward. I would argue he gets shoved out of bounds and should have been a foul, but no foul given. But then other moments where he just could take that first touch back towards the direction that the pass came or could take it towards the center of the pitch where it's, theoretically more space, but that is clearly what Vitesse want him to do. That's where their numbers are, and they can just clog and force him to recycle possession. And instead he keeps sh- like just shuffling one yard further out wide and then receives the ball in turns. Or he just takes it in a little bit of a direction that wasn't expected. He keeps the ball moving, and he keeps the play developing. And that is so important to that central midfield spot to just keep the ball moving, keep the play developing, and see what happens instead of, let's reset, and then we'll figure it out from there. I like the idea of sometimes doing Doing that sometimes keeping the attacking intent going and I really really like this performance from Luca De La Torre he's a smooth
1: operator right he, he, he really is. is he's comfortable on the ball he's not flawless of course but he can drive play forward and I think about part of the reason why I'm I'm interested in seeing more of him with the national team and part of the reason why when we had our November roster analysis show after Baralther unveiled that roster for for Mexico and for Jamaica Part of the reason why I was, I was bummed and, and thought that it was a mistake to leave him off the roster is I think he fits really well with what Baralter wants as that number eight. Certainly on the offensive side, he has the quality on the ball. He'll drive play forward. He's not going to thread a ton of passes in behind the back line, although he can do that from time to time. He's not really going to pop up a ton in situations that give him goals or give him assists. But he, you don't, you don't need everybody to be doing that stuff. You don't need all of your, all of your players to be directly contributing to work in the final third. You need players to help you get to the final third. And I think that might be Luca Taylor very best thing. Somewhat similar to Eunice Musa and how they get on the ball, drive it forward. Very different physical profiles, very different builds, very different in, in that way. But man, when they get on the ball, both of those guys are smooth. And if there's a game where Musa can't go or McKenny can't go, I don't know that there's a player I would prefer to see in there over Luca De La Torre. So I'm glad, Taylor. I'm glad that you went through and watched these clips, and I'm glad that he had a pretty strong performance, even in a even in a two-one loss.
0: Yeah, just the way he was able to kind of absorb that pressure stood out to me. And and is a player now who I, I'm not going to be like like hollering mad when if and when he's not called into the next camp. But I think I will be frustrated because I do think that he. He does a lot of things well, as you said, that would help the U.S. and would at the very least be an interesting player to throw into camp. So I do hope we see more of him in a U.S. jersey. Joe, what other players would you like to see based on their performances this weekend
1: or not based on those performances as we've already talked about with a few players? I would still like to see Joe Scally involved with the national team. He didn't have the best performance over the weekend on Saturday. We no, mentioned the 4-1 loss that Gladbach had to Tedesco's RB Leipzig team. We talked about that on Weekend Review just a little bit. Scally started for Gladbach in a 4-1 loss, and Gladbach has been leaking goals recently. This is a tough performance for Scaly. He didn't excel on the ball. He's in a little bit of a rough patch right now, at least according to his manager Adi Hutter. There's a quote. This is translated from German to English, so I'm sure there's some some differences there. But the quote is, "Joe Scalley has been reeling off an enormous program for weeks." That's the part where I'm like, I'm not entirely sure what that's all about. But generally positive sentiment from Hutter, at least at the beginning of this quote. Then he goes on to say. It was to be expected that he would go through a phase in which it would become more difficult for him. He's a very young player. Now it's up to the older, experienced players to support him as best they can. This was, like I said, not the best performance for Scally. He was not also in the best position either. Gladbach would continually move the ball forward, have it in possession, and then lose it in a bad spot and leave themselves vulnerable to counterattacks. And Scally as a right back in this game in a back four, was very regularly overrun by one or two or at times even three Leipzig players on their left, Gladbach's right. Not an easy game for him situationally and not his best performance either. Tyler Adams, just quickly to mention, came off the bench for Leipzig in the second half in this game. So there were two Americans featuring here I want to see more from Scally. I have confidence in his ability to break out of this, this little rut. And same with Gladback. I think they're a better team than the results show right now. But uh, not, not the best performance, not one that Scally or his team will want to remember for long.
0: Uh, Joe, a few other quick ones uh, for me to mention. Emmanuel Sabi started, scored a goal, uh, played 90 minutes in Odense's 2-1 second leg loss to Randers on Sunday. Odense advanced 3-2 on aggregate. And Sabi, I would say this was more of the Luca de la Torre reaction that I tend to have, if that makes any sense. It was a like, yeah, that was good. That was fine. But I don't think I saw anything in there that made me think he should be in the conversation with Tim Wea or with... Gio Reyna or whomever else on that right wing uh, I, I think his his work rate was excellent, he did a lot of good defensive uh, stuff, his goal was essentially continuing a run uh, basically he makes a run, the ball's not given, pass doesn't come through and he sort of takes his time walking back, does a little bit of the Luis Suarez like hanging offside and then ends up onside because there's another through ball that's then cut back and he's there for the tap in. So you got to be there. You got to like be in the right position to score the goal. It wasn't a sort of dribbling or a combination pass that sends him through and then he finishes uh, really well. But I thought his defensive work was good. He took people on. He tried to make things happen. And it was a like... Tim Weah Jr. performance in my mind. <laughs> so I, I still have uh, Weah pretty significantly ahead of, of, of certainly Sabi, but a lot of other players on that right wing. But good to see Sabi scoring. Good to see him involved in Europe. Same for uh, Nico joachini came off the bench, got an assist, and played 13 minutes in Montpellier's 4 0 win over Brest on Saturday. Joe, any notes on either of them or any other Americans
1: abroad? Quick on, on Joe Achini, I had forgotten, to be totally honest, that he was in Liga now yep. after playing in Ligue 2 yep. for quite a while with Khan. So that's good to know. Maybe if I forgot that or didn't know that, there's some listeners that, that didn't know that either. He's played 14 games, two starts for Montpellier, mostly as a late sub. And that's where his impact comes in this game against Brest. The assist is... Him just driving coast-to-coast, coast, essentially, after Brest have, have put almost everybody forward. He drives down the field and, and plays a simple five-yard pass that the attacker, the, the the shooter, really does most of the work, at least in terms of creating and finishing off that chance. But good to see him getting involved in a, in a higher league than he's been in, in the past. One player we haven't mentioned yet, Gianluca Busio. Started and played 90 minutes in a 1-1 draw with Juve, playing for Venezia, of course, Great experience for him. Great result for Venezia. Juve is not exactly flying right now under Allegri, but good to see him involved. I watched a bunch of the actions from this game. Pretty consistent on the ball, showed some defensive engine off the ball. Good stuff. Not not anything that's going to blow your mind, but in a lot of ways, Gianluca Busio is not a player that's going to blow your mind. So good to see him involved in that game. Good to see Tessman involved in that game. Taylor, the only other thing that I wanted to mention on this show that that at least is a little bit different than normal is Richie Ledesma and Alex Mendez, mm. two two former U.S. U-20 stars. Those are, in a lot of ways, some of my fondest memories, watching these U-20s at, at different World Cups and things like that, the U-17s too. Ledesma towards ACL about a year ago now, just over a year ago, 21 years old at this point in the, in the PSV system, and he's almost back, Taylor. He already got a few minutes with young Ajax, a uh, young PSV, excuse me, recently. That would be, that would be controversial otherwise. That would be, yeah. yeah I, don't, I think that's frowned upon in the Netherlands and in most places probably. Yeah. He's been on the bench for PSV in, in each of their last two games. He will get minutes soon. Uh, there was a great article by Tom Hamilton for ESPN chronicling his comeback from that ACL uh, injury. I'd encourage folks to go listen to that and go, go read that. But man, great to see Ledesma it's starting to get involved and he was really, really fun in his cameo for young PSV recently. So that's, that's my beat on Ledesma. Keep your eyes peeled for him. And maybe keep your eyes peeled for Alex Mendez, who we haven't talked about in quite some time from the Galaxy to SC Freiburg's youth system to Ajax's youth system. Played a bunch for young Ajax, I- not a bunch, but played some for young Ajax. And now is with Vizela in Portugal, newly promoted club. Mendes moved there in July 2021. And he's gotten some minutes. He's played just over 400 minutes now. Not a ton, but he is getting on the field. And, and Vizela are mid-table right now in, in the Portuguese first division. So it's fun to, to check in on these players. Ledesma, I think, has, has a bit more in front of him right now. But Mendez has the sauce. And there's a chance that he could continue to, to grow and, and come back into the general USMNT fans' consciousness and maybe even Greg Baralter's consciousness over the next you know, however many years.
0: Joe, ending on a positive note, I do appreciate. I'm going to end on an apologetic (laughs) note because this is a (laughs) random one. But when I first uh, was in Kentucky and I saw that they had Versailles, but uh, spelled exactly like Versailles, uh, I laughed and I laughed. And yet to, uh, hear about the team that Joachini plays for and know that it is pronounced Montpellier and know that, uh, just north of Richmond, there's Montpelier. Uh, Montpelier. I probably have no, no <laughs> grounds for mockery. No grounds for mockery. Americans butchering French as we are wont to do. So apologies to the people of Kentucky for, uh, mocking their pronunciation and apologies to I guess, anyone who speaks French for yep. uh, butchering their language.
1: <laughs> that feels about right, Taylor. Yep. I think that might even be the perfect note to end this on.
0: I, I appreciate that, Joe. I appreciate uh, your taking the time to talk about the U.S. Men's National Team, to talk about Major League Soccer, and all the many Americans in action this past weekend. Joe, we covered a lot of ground, uh, but I very much enjoyed it, as I always do chatting with you. all oh, right back at you, Taylor. Listeners, hopefully you all enjoyed as well and enjoyed our pronunciation because it was uh, very, very good, if I say so myself that I am. (laughs) Uh, And on that note, we will talk to you very soon. Thanks so much for listening.